0: Cornell is preaching for me this morning, so I'm taking adult Sunday school class for him. And uh, I think I sent out an announcement somewhere letting everybody know that we're going to be doing a Q&A today. We haven't done one of those in uh, quite a while. So today we're going to do a question and answer. Any questions that you have regarding the Bible, life, ministry, theology, anything like that, this is your chance to ask them. And if I don't know, I will just tell you I don't know. And if I do know, I'll try and answer it. So before we begin, let's open with the word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we are thankful to you for the blessing of another day. Great weather outside, the freedom to enjoy our fellowship and our, our worship together as a church. We're grateful for the work that you have done in calling us to yourself and delivering us from our sin. And it is our joy and delight to to know your word and to have it before us and to, uh, to, uh, to simply have the wisdom that you give to us in your word. We are grateful for all that you provide and the grace that you give to us, your people. We ask your blessing upon this time, and we pray for a good discussion and clarity in our thinking, in our our questions, and in the answers, and that you would be glorified in this time. We also pray that you would be with Cornell as he continues to prepare and think through what he is going to share with us this morning, and we pray that you would be glorified through the congregation um, that is here gathered, and through our worship service and our fellowship one with another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Lanny, I look to you because you're always the one that cues us off with questions, if you have a question, question and answer time now. So, if you have one you would like to ask, now is your opportunity. Sven. Uh well, I had something I was gonna I was gonna share. I had uh, three things that I could start off with, but I, I will do questions first. That was your best question that you could have. All right. Well, let me start off while you're thinking up questions. Let me start off with something that I was reminded of. I observed this morning in my reading. I was re- I'm reading through Second Samuel. And 2nd Samuel is the book in the Old Testament that deals with David and and 1st Samuel ends with the death of Saul and that first uh the first chapter in 2nd Samuel is always kind of puzzling to me because there is an uh, Saul dies in a battle against the Amalekites and at the end of 1st Samuel when Saul dies he is wounded mortally in the field of battle and he did not want to the Amalekites to take him in his injured and wounded state and make sport of him and and then be the one to kill him. So he asked his sword bearer, his armor bearer, to uh, kill him for uh, to kill him so that he wouldn't be made sport of and be killed by the Amalekites. And so the armor bearer refused to do that. and Saul fell on his own sword, and then the armor bearer fell on his sword as well. And that's how Saul died. But then the opening chapter of Second Samuel begins with an Amalekite running to David and giving him the report of Saul's death, and that that Amalekite then. Claimed to be the one to kill Saul, and he told David the story that I, I saw Saul and he was wounded and he asked me to kill him and so I did. And then David executes the Amalekite for killing Saul, and he says to the Amalekite, "How dare you lift your hand or take a uh, take sword against God's anointed?" And he kills the Amalekite for doing that. And it's always puzzled me. I wish there was just more detail there um, because what puzzles me in that is why did the Amalekite think that David was going to take this with with receive this gladly or joyfully. And then in spite of the fact that the other thing I wish that I knew in that before I move on, the other thing that I wish that I knew in that whole account is why the Amalekite, when he knew that David was going to slay him, didn't say, hold on, time out. I was only trying to get the credit because I thought that you would believe me. And and that's what I think the Amalekite was after, is that he was trying to get David's favor. And uh, why he thought, why the Amalekite, who was a foreigner, who was part of the army that just slayed Saul, why he would have thought that David, who was on Saul's side and on Israel's side, would have been favorable to him, that's always a mystery to me. And then why David killed him is somewhat of a mystery, and then why the Amalekite didn't confess that he didn't actually kill David. That's always been a mystery to me as well. But anyway, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel is a book that details David's uh, rise to the ascendancy to the throne of Israel after the death of Saul. And one of the patterns that I always observe... And I love reading, watching this pattern in 2 Samuel, when I read 2 Samuel. Second Samuel starts off with, with David receiving that report of Saul's death, and he is made king of Israel. And then everything that David does in 2 Samuel is greater and better and successful. So he goes to war against the Philistines, and God delivers the Philistines into his hand. The, all of David's enemies fall before him. Uh, David is firmly established as the king of Israel. David shows grace to Mephibosheth, and everything is going well. The kingdom is expanding it is strong, it is wealthy, it is prosperous. Everything is prospering under David's hand. Until one event in 2 Samuel. Do you know what that one event is? It's the sin against Uriah with Bathsheba. That's in 2 Samuel chapter, I think it's 10, it's chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And from that point forward, the rest of 2 Samuel is a tale of David's frustration, the rebellion of his own household, his own children rebelling against him, um, losing before his enemies. It is, it is almost like from that point forward, everything that David did was vexed. And he couldn't, he couldn't get out of that. He couldn't get away from that. And so 2 Samuel, if you were to chart it, it would look something like this. It starts off with David, everything is going great until the sin with Bathsheba, and then everything goes downhill after that in 2 Samuel. And I love watching that play out every year as I read it. So if you're reading through 2 Samuel, just make that observation. Observe that. Um, there's, there's almost nothing bad that happens to David prior to that sin. And it was just a reminder to me that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And that's, that, that incident reminds me of that every time. It, it is, that sin by the leadership, God's ordained leadership in that nation meant vexation and frustration and, um, horrible things happening for the rest of that time. That's not to mean that David wasn't, uh, wasn't blessed by God, but it is to say that David, uh, lived with the, the ramifications of his sin for the rest of his life. Yes, Jenny. Yeah, the question is, she has a relative who, who thinks that David was a bad person, so all the people who name their child David or think that David was an honorable man are misled in that. And Jenny's response is to point out that God doesn't use perfect people and that uh, the Bible still says that David was a man after God's own heart. And, and that is true. Uh, that is i think an appropriate response to point that out and the other thing that i would point out in that in that situation is that one of the lessons that david's life teaches us is that genuine children of god who love god and want to serve god can be caught in sin and can even sin grievously but they don't continue in that sin because david when he was when he was confronted with it repented of that sin and received god's forgiveness and so David is um, David demonstrates the David demonstrates the fact that we can, as believers, still sin, and we ought to be warned against doing that. Then never to think that any kind of sin is outside of uh, is beyond us to commit, and then also to realize that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We can come to God; He will forgive even the grossest of sins. Um, but we need to follow David's model and repent. Yeah. So David was a man after God's own heart, and that covenant with David. If memory serves me, that was before the sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember that? Anybody else remember that? Am I getting that wrong? I believe that the Davidic covenant was before, this, before the sin with Bathsheba. Second Samuel doesn't cover that, but I think 1 Kings does. Um, I would have to look at that. But God still honored his covenant with David. He made a covenant with David. If David was a wicked man who wasn't a believer... And who was a horrible individual? God wouldn't have made that covenant with David that he still honors to this day. Okay, so the question was: When she first got Marilyn, first got saved, she had a Schofield reference Bible or a Schofield Bible, and Schofield offers a certain interpretation of the parables that today many Bible teachers don't follow that interpretation or take on the parables in Matthew 13. And she was wondering why. And I didn't learn. Uh, let me back up. I think that for modern. Schofield is a dispensationalist. I, every time I start a sentence, i got to back up just a little bit more. Um, Schofield was a dispensationalist, and dispensationalism teaches that there there is uh, multiple dispensations or administrations of God over his people throughout history. God has a dispensation in which he's dealing with Israel through a the theocratic kingdom, prophets and kings and priests, etc., um, that we are in a dispensation now where God is dealing with his church. We will be at a dispensation in the future when God picks up his program for Israel again, and uh, brings us into a kingdom. The future kingdom age will be another dispensation. Um, Schofield, I think, that some of the older dispensationalists, Schofield included, believed that there was more than one way to salvation. Um, Because God administered his kingdom differently, uh, Schofield said some things, and I've read the quotes, but I've never read them in context because I don't have any of Schofield's Schofield's notes or uh, uh, Schofield's writings. But I have read quotations from Schofield where he seems to suggest that Old Testament Jews were saved by law. New Testament Christians are saved by grace. And I think that 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 affected his view of the parables in in a way that modern dispensationalists like John MacArthur don't view those parables the same way. Because they today, a modern dispensationalist, which I am one, I would say that Israel was saved in the same way that we are saved. It is by grace. Through the sovereign grace of God, His regenerating work, and that Israel was not stayed by law, and we're stayed by grace, but that everybody in every dispensation is stayed by grace, based upon the work of Christ, not upon our works of righteousness. So, not having read thoroughly Schofield, because I wasn't trained in Schofeldian dispensationalism, I was trained in sort of a modern, uh, type of dispensationalism. Having not read him, I, I can't speak specifically to that issue, though I've read quotes that I think, okay, I think, I think he had a, a different understanding of that. Though I would agree with the idea of dispensations, I wouldn't agree with that hard, fast rule of dispensationalism that Israel was saved by grace. Or sorry, that Israel was saved by law. I would say he was saved by grace. But I don't think that that came out in the study Bible thoroughly. At least not the one... I have a Schofield study Bible, but I have never thoroughly read that with the study notes. Yeah, and I've never read, I've never read Schofield on the parables in Matthew 13. And I can't even... I'm trying to remember back to my Bible professor who taught me through the book of Matthew, and I cannot remember if his was Schofeldian or not, or a modern dispensationalist. My take would be that he probably took a, a Schofield view of the parables as opposed to what MacArthur would give today. So, and I just, I just got the book uh, on parables by John MacArthur in the mail last week, and I'm looking forward to working my way through that, and I may try and grab something by Schofield as well and, and try and Parse that out. So that's just not an area where I've spent a lot of time, particularly with older style dispensationalism, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a hard and fast dispensationalist that would say from this date to this date, this is how it worked. Uh, I think I'm kind of what I appreciate the way John MacArthur puts it, a leaky dispensationalist, where I recognize that God deals with different people at different times, but I have a hard time saying that there are seven of them or ten of them or whatever it is, and that it started here and ended here and here are the characteristics of it. That's how I learned some dispensationalism in Bible college, but I was never really comfortable with things that they assumed to be true from the text that weren't necessarily true from the text. And so I think it's safer to just say, I believe that God deals with, he dealt with Israel in a certain way, that he did not deal with Noah in that way, and he deals with us in a way that he doesn't deal with the the children of Israel, and he will deal with the entire world in a way that is different than how he deals with his church today. And so there there are different ways that God administers his kingdom and his his heavenly kingdom and I'm content to just simply say I, I recognize that that makes me a dispensationalist and not covenant. Uh is dispensationalism or different? Go ahead. Yeah, I've never I've never read Darby either. So I I'm not like that, that's a part of that old school dispensationalism. Um and I think that the I think that sometimes we want to we want to say well if you're a dispensationalist then you must sign on with everything John MacArthur has said, everything Darby has said, everything Schofield said, everything Ryrie says. And I'm not comfortable doing that because I, I think that my understanding of scripture drives me to the conclusion that is the Israel and the church are not the same entity. Okay, so that means there are two, dis- at least two dispensations. So to say that, okay, once you admit that, then you must agree with everything Darby said, I think is a, that's a, a straw man argument. It tries to paint everybody with that brush. It would be like if, if I found the most extreme, radical, legalistic, uh, post-millennial covenant theologian who made these radical, heretical things, and I said, well, if you're a covenant, if you believe in covenant or if you're a post-millennial, you must agree with everything this guy says. I don't I don't think that's fair. That's not a fair argument, and I wouldn't use that. So the question is, that would it be safe to say that some of the older, older pastors, teachers, and theologians had a lesser understanding than we do and that God is revealing more to us today than he did back then. Um, I don't know that I would make that conclusion. I think I would describe it this way. I think that everybody has their spiritual blind spots. Um, you read a guy like, um, you read some of the Puritans, like John Owen. I'm just throwing out names here. John Owen. There are things that Spurgeon has said that I don't agree with. So I read a lot of Spurgeon. but the, So once in a while I'll come across something in Spurgeon's handling of Scripture where he will say something that this text means this, and I will have to disagree and say, no, no, that text doesn't mean that. You have drawn a conclusion here that this doesn't follow, and it might be half of his sermon. Well, that doesn't mean that I throw out everything Spurgeon wrote. Um, I think that in many in many senses, we stand on the shoulders of giants today. We look at what these men have done, and everybody today, everybody then and today has their spiritual blind spots. I'm sure that 150, 200 years from now, if the Lord should tarry, there will be people who will read my messages or my book or something and say, well, hold on a second. We, This is not biblical, what Jim said here in this context. And that may be true. I think if I knew what it was, I would correct it. But we all have those those blind spots in our theological and spiritual lives. But that doesn't mean that we throw out everybody. I think we, you need to read everybody with discernment and ask the question, is this in keeping with Scripture? And we stand on their shoulders in the sense that they've given us insight into Scripture that I think is valuable but we always have to check them according to Scripture. And we find that, and this is true in our own context, everybody is a product of their culture and their environment and the day and age in which they live. So if you, read, if you read Luther or you read Calvin or you read Spurgeon or you read John MacArthur, all of us, our theology is to a large degree, not entirely, but it is to a noticeable measure influenced by our culture. So that if you read, for instance, J.C. Ryle, he would rail against the, any kind of a play or a theater or a talent show or anything like that as being, uh, you know, the entertainments of the devil and, and these amusements and, and entertainments that they would have, that people viewed in their day, he would have viewed those as satanic. Well, today in our day, we don't, I don't think of going to a talent show where my daughter is participating as being participating in the amusements of the devil. I don't think that. But in that culture, they did believe that. In our culture, our way of understanding how truth applies is to a large degree affected by the culture in which we live. And one of the challenges that we all face is to try and figure out where where is my thinking affected by culture and how do I write this and make sure that it's biblically informed. And some of the blind spots that I think former teachers and theologians had was the culture in which they lived. There are things that Calvin did, for instance, that was just the way life was back then. And it wasn't necessarily that it was sinful, it's just the way that life was. And so he would say certain things and do certain things that today I wouldn't agree with. Winston Churchill? Who was it that always smoked a cigar? Spurgeon was Spurgeon enjoyed his cigars. Yeah. Not only did he enjoy his cigars, he spoke prolifically about his enjoyment of his cigars. Well, see, that's I mean, was Spurgeon an evil an in evil satanically uh, driven individual no he wasn't but in that culture you know things were different and so he would speak at length about his enjoyment of his cigars and today we shake our head at that they didn't have a certain understanding of things right he also quit yeah yeah justin yeah they all do eventually right <laughs> justin Oh, yeah, that's a good distinction to make. The difference between revelation and illumination. God has given to us all the same revelation and no more than that. But the Spirit of God does illuminate, that is, give us light in our understanding of the text. And sometimes that is through teachers that we have read and theologians that we have appreciated and benefited from from the past. That's one means by which God helps give us understanding in the text. And another one is just through our own meditation, understanding of the text, looking at it in context and learning how to interpret Scripture and and meditating on these things. Those are the means by which God gives us further illumination, but not revelation. In other words, there's no, nothing to be added to this by way of, you know, God's given us new truth. But God does continue to refine and reform our understanding of truth and our application of truth in every culture and context. That's illumination. That's not revelation. Yeah, and there are, there are times when we read something in Scripture and and we don't notice it, but then we read it years later or for the hundredth time and suddenly it slaps us across the face. And sometimes that can be because of the environment of our lives and where we're at. And we're spiritually ready for this. And we're thinking about something. Something has just happened and suddenly this jumps off the page. And that's just part of the sanctification process. So the question is, she hears about some Catholics that um, they believe that there are certain people who are in the Catholic Church are genuinely saved. But if they are genuinely saved, they would remove themselves from that from that church. Uh, beginning with the premise that I would agree with, that Catholicism is a theological cult. It's not a sociological cult, but a theological cult, meaning that Catholicism has many things about the gospel and our understanding of justification and sanctification, confused and sometimes blatantly heretical. And certainly there are heretical practices within Catholicism, like praying to the saints and trusting in Mary as your co-redemptrix and even Mary worship and saint worship and different icons and statues and things like that. So those are all theological issues with Roman Catholicism, though... They have a very orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Their understanding of the gospel is certainly uh, certainly wanting. Though I think that Roman Catholicism, and there are Roman Catholics who would do a better job of defending the Trinity than some Christians who have their view of the gospel completely correct. In other words, you hear some Christians who, who articulate the gospel, they're theologically sound and great, but then they go to talk about the Trinity and they define modalism or they describe some heretical view of the Trinity. Whereas Roman Catholicism, their view of the Trinity is very orthodox and the virgin birth. They get into problems with Mary and other other theologies. But now to the question of if you are a Christian, is it possible to be a Christian in the Roman Catholic Church? I think it is possible to become a Christian while you were in the Roman Catholic Church, but not because of Roman Catholic doctrine on the gospel, but because you have heard the gospel in some other context, uh, in some other Christian environment that God uses to save you. And I think that in the case of... Most, and we'll not say all, but most people who become believers while in Roman Catholicism, if they begin to grow spiritually, they will become increasingly uncomfortable with the theology and the practices of Roman Catholicism. That discomfort should drive them to a point where they are forced to leave. Um, How long does that take for somebody that is in Roman Catholicism to become uncomfortable enough to leave? Sometimes it might take a year, sometimes it might take a longer period of time because we all grow in our sanctification at different rates. So I think it's hard to say that, I think it would be impossible to say that if you got saved in a Roman Catholic church and you've been a Roman Catholic all your life, that within three months you would have to leave that. Well, maybe, but maybe not. It might be that you, you don't even have the understanding theologically of the necessity to leave or even of why you would leave for a longer period of time. How long that is, I, I don't know. So I think that they should, if they're being sanctified and growing in their faith, they should become increasingly uncomfortable there and would eventually be forced to leave, I think, in good conscience. Yeah, that's very true. God does see the heart and, and he's not going to damn somebody if they get saved and they're in the Roman Catholic Church so that first week after they get saved. As Jenny's point. They're not going to, if they die, they're not going to go to hell because they were still at their Roman Catholic Church because salvation is not by works. It is by grace. And so you can have justified people in that environment. But once again, you would feel driven to get out of that environment eventually. Just like if you were saved in, in any bad church. If you went to a, a bad, seeker-sensitive, wingnut, entertainment-based church here in town and you happened to stumble across the gospel in some context and you got saved, right? You might think for a period of time that, man, this is this is where it's at. This is what real Christianity is. But you would begin to grow in that environment. And for you know nothing else other than what you're surrounded by. After a period of growth and sanctification, there would come a point where you just say, I this is really, there has to be something more than this. And I've got to get out of here because this is not right. And uh, some some people that happens in a year. Some people it happens in 10 years. You know, it's just different growth. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to think that it would probably take longer rather than shorter um, because you're involved in an area where you're going to grow very slowly. If that's all that you're exposed to, you're going to grow very slowly in that environment. Okay, so this is, uh, here's the context of that. Second, Uh, 2 Kings 8, verses 7 through 15. So let's just read it here. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, Take a gift in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Will I recover from the sickness? So the king sent out his servant to meet Elisha to ask, Is the king going to recover from the sickness? Verse 9, So Hazael went to meet him. And took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You will surely recover. But the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, and Hazael, remembers the servant who came out to meet Elisha with that question from the king. Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. Then Hazael said, But what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do such great things? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. So he departed from Elisha and returned to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. On the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. Okay, so here's the question. When Elisha said, go tell your master that he will recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die, was Elisha telling the servant to go murder Ben-Hadad, the king over Aram? And I don't think it is. There's more. I mean, you could take it as a lie, but you could also understand it in this way. God revealed to Elisha in that moment what, what Hazael was going to do. He knew that once Hazael went back, he would see the king in his weakened condition, and that Hazael would end up smothering the king and killing the king, so that Hazael would become king in his place. And then as king over Aram, he would do all these horrible things to Israel. So when Elisha told him, you shall say to your master that he will recover, that is a true statement. It's called a counterfactual. It's a true statement in that had Hazael not killed the king, the king would have recovered from the sickness. And so Elisha told Hazael, go tell your master that he will recover because that would have happened. But Elisha knew that Hazael was going to go back and kill him. And so Elisha could truthfully say, you will recover from the sickness, but the Lord has also shown me that you are going to die because Hazael would kill him. So Elijah was revealing two things that, number one, the sickness was not unto death, that that Ben-Hadad left to his own. He would have recovered from that sickness. The sickness wasn't going to kill him. But God also revealed to Elisha that Hazael was going to kill Ben-Hadad and become king in his place. And so Elisha gave two true statements. He would recover from the sickness. That's the sense of it. And he would die because Hazael would kill him. So had Hazael not killed him, he would have recovered from the sickness, which is a true statement. But when Hazael went back, he told the king, you recover from the sickness. And then it says the next day, um, yeah, on the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. So he ended up smothering him or drowning him. And so he died, and Hazael became king in his place. So God revealed two things to Elisha, that the counterfactual that had had Hazael not killed him, he would have recovered, and what was actually going to happen, that Hazael was going to kill ben Had. Both of those things are true statements. Does that make sense? So it, it is like when David, and I forget what city he was in, he asked the Lord, or a prophet, I forget what it was, you know, it was in 1 Samuel, and I just read it, I should remember this, but it was, uh, David asked, if I remain in this city, will the people of this city turn me over to Saul? And the Lord revealed to him, yes, if you remain here, they will turn you over, and so David left. So what God revealed to David in that moment was a counterfactual, something that would happen, If David did this, what which thing never actually did happen because David did something else. And so David made a decision to go one way. But God knew exactly what would happen if David chose to go this way. Now, it was it was the plan of God that David should do this and live rather than that David should do this and die. So that was God's intention for that to happen. But God revealed to David in that instance that the results of going following one path and the results of following another path. And David obviously went the one way because God revealed to him, if this, if you do this, this will happen. Which is, when we say God is omniscient, we, under, we what that means is that God knows all things that will happen, that are happening, that have happened, everything that is true. But God also knows all the counterfactuals. In other words, God knows everything that would happen in any other given scenario. And God, that's what God revealed to David in that instance, is what would happen in a different scenario. And so I think that that is the sense in which God is speaking to Hazael, Regarding Ben-Hadad, he is revealing to him, here's what's going to happen, and here's what would happen given a different scenario. And so Ben-Hadad deceived him, the king, in one regard, and then killed him to become king in this place, fulfilling what God knew would eventually happen, that is that Ben-Hadad would actually die. Yeah, I I think that if if you understand it in the sense that God told Elisha to tell Hazael to lie to the king... um, that makes God the author of sin in that sense and Elisha a liar. And so that is not a right understanding of that. I think that the other yeah, the other there is there another way and whenever we come up with a difficulty like that in scripture, we ask ourselves, is there another way of understanding what's going on here that doesn't create this conflict? And I, I think that the one I've just laid out to you explains that. That that God was saying to him, Here's what would happen in this situation, but here but here's what's actually going to happen. So would he recover? Yes, he would, if Hazael didn't kill him. He would recover from the sickness. He wouldn't die from the sickness. That's a true statement. But that never actually happened because God also revealed to Elijah that he was going to die at the hand of Hazael, not by the sickness. And I think that that's maybe exactly what Elisha is saying. God has revealed to me that he's going to die, but not by the sickness. Not from the illness, but actually from Hazael's treachery. Yeah, Cornell? Yeah, until he was ashamed and and Elijah wept. And I I think that what's being... Cornell's point is good, verse 11, that when Elisha revealed this to Hazael... He stared him down, and I think that that's exactly what's going on. Hazael probably already had this in his heart. You know, he may have already left the palace with the load for Elisha, thinking to himself, I wonder if I should kill the king and become king in his place. And, you know, that's going on secretly in his mind. And when Elisha reveals this to him, he's basically revealing to Hazael, um, yeah, the king would recover, but, both, but God has revealed to me he's not going to recover. And then he stares him down because Elisha's revealing that God has also revealed to him what's going to happen and probably what was in Hazael's heart at the moment. <clears throat> Yeah, that was a that was a tough one, toughest one so far. Thanks, Landy. <clears throat> yes, Mike. Yeah, the term "false teacher" the question, I guess, or the observation really could boil down to this: if I were to summarize it, uh, in what sense, in what ways, and how often should we use the term "false teacher"? And I think it is appropriate to say that anytime we're talking about denying an essential of the faith regarding the doctrine of God, the nature of Scripture, the nature of Christ, um, and that covers, I think, all of the essentials that if somebody gets those wrong and teaches something that is outside of orthodoxy regarding those things, that we are dealing with somebody who is evidencing that they're not saved, and we do call that a false teacher. Now, it is possible for some people to teach false things, and we might say what they're teaching there is a falsehood, but the person teaching it is not necessarily a false teacher just because they say something wrong. Um, But You do have to look at the theology and the doctrine and what is being spoken by that individual regarding the essentials of the faith. Uh, I I prefer to use the term many times aberrant, that you have somebody who's teaching something that is aberrant. What they're teaching is not, it's false, but it's not heretical. And so it's off orthodoxy, it's not quite right, but it doesn't mark one as a false teacher. And some people can, the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher is that a true teacher, a, a, a person who is a child of God, who, when confronted by their false doctrine, with their false doctrine and the truth, will turn from that false doctrine and embrace the truth. So this is what makes this is what makes like if if uh, if Lanny were to stand up here and talk about how an egg is a picture of the Trinity because it has a yolk and a white and a shell. And I told you before, never use any analogies for the Trinity. But but Lanny gets up here and he's teaching a doctrine which is really tri uh, part triparti. Tripart- uh, three parts to God, three separate and distinct parts to God. Uh, I forget what the name of that is right now. But what, that's a false—that's a falsehood, okay? Um, and I go to Lanny and I say, no, no, you understand that this is teaching a false doctrine regarding the Trinity. And Lanny would say, oh, you're right, I shouldn't use analogies. I understand now, I'm going to stay away from that. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you go to Randy Phillips of Phillips, Craig and Dean, and you say, this is the theology of the Trinity here. And he says, no, I understand what you mean by that. I reject that. This is what I believe about the Trinity and he is hardened in it and perseveres in it, that's a false teacher. And that's there's a difference, a huge difference between those two. Yeah, Jenny. I, I think if I had a new believer that was in that situation of of wanting to find out the truth and, and wanting to be exposed to good teaching and having a lot of questions, I would point them to a MacArthur study Bible. I've had a Ryrie study Bible. I've had a Schofield study Bible. Uh, and, for a while in our house, we had an NIV application study Bible. I, I think that MacArthur's Notes and MacArthur's study Bible is the best one out there. It's, I think it's thorough. It answers the difficult questions in Scripture. It um, gives great introductions for each book of the Bible, puts it in historical context. Um, I, I don't think there's anything better out there as far as study Bibles go. Um, I, I love it. Yeah, a, a study a, a study Bible. I. A lot of people, when they first get saved, they want a Bible that they can read and understand. And so they'll search out something like the Amplified Bible and the the Good News Bible, which are paraphrases. And a good, solid English translation, like the ESV or the NASV, I think, are the the best modern English translations. Those are the two best. And then as far as study notes and guides go, I would recommend John MacArthur's study Bible. Not because I'm a MacArthurite or that I agree with him on every single thing that he's ever said ever, and that I worship John MacArthur. That's not it. But just as far as the notes that go in there, the depth of them... Uh, it's good. I I don't want to study Bible where you read a passage and then the study note says, now how does that make you feel? Or what do you think about that? Or can you think of a time in your life when you felt abandoned like David? I don't want that garbage, right? I want explanations for the text that is thorough and solid and theological and and grounded in truth. Uh, Not ones that elicit memories or feelings for me, but ones that give me a firm understanding of of what is true. And there may be things in there that are too hard for them to understand and and then you can just explain to them Look, you're not going to understand everything about the Christian faith or about God right out of the gate. You need to have a good Bible and you need to be in a good, solid church where you're hearing the word of God preached. And then here are some teachers that you can listen to. You can listen to John MacArthur's messages for free, Phil Johnson, Alistair Begg. These are all good men who exposit scripture and explain the truth and point them in that direction so that they can start to feed. And then they will grow in grace and knowledge of Christ and and begin to be sanctified and understand truth. All right, well, our time is up, so unless anybody has a quick question that can be answered quickly, not from Lanny. Go ahead, Marilyn. The New Living Translation. Uh, I think that's a paraphrase. Do you know that, Justin? Justin says it's a paraphrase. They use the term tra- translation, but the NLT, from everything that I've read, it's, it doesn't read or flow like what we, like the NASV or the ESV. Uh, I, yeah. Oh, then I'd have to, let me look at that, because I'd have to look at that. I know it's easy to understand, but I I think it is more dynamic equivalency rather than formal equivalency. And and formal equivalency is trying to stay as close to word-for-word translation as you can, even if the English is choppy and difficult to understand. Formal tries to capture the idea or the essence. And so on that spectrum, you have amplified Bibles that are over on the formal equivalency, dynamic, or sorry, uh, dynamic equivalency end of it which is more of the paraphrases and trying to kind of capture the essence and make it really readable and understandable, even if that means sacrificing some of the literalness of it. If the NIV is on that side of the spectrum. The ESV and the NASB are over on the formal equivalency side, which is the more more word for word um, and and sacrificing understandability, not in every context, but leaning towards, let's just make sure that we represent what is there, not necessarily try and make it understandable to everybody. So there's that spectrum, and I think that the NLT, and I'll have to look into it and read more on it and maybe look at your translation, is more on the dynamic equivalency. It doesn't make it a bad translation in itself. Right? The NIV is not satanic just because it's on that side of the spectrum. But the further that way you go, the less, you, the further away from uh, a literal word-for-word translation you get. And so I, I don't know where that is at on that spectrum. Yes, Holman Christian Study Bible... Justin, do you know that? I don't know much. I've never read the Holman. I have that translation electronically, but not, I've never read it. So it's over on the formal equivalency side, but n- maybe not where the ESV is at. Okay. Right. Okay. Thanks for your good questions. Even the difficult ones. Appreciate that. And uh let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had together and for stretching our minds and our hearts. We thank you again for your word and the clarity of it and the truthfulness of it. And we pray that Anything that has been said here that is um, wrong or in error may be quickly forgotten, but that your truth may be established and be firm forever. We thank you and we trust you and we worship you today in the name of Christ our Lord and King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.